glad you guys are here. I have a really important question to start off with. Probably the most important question today. How many of you guys have been to In-N-Out? Oh, come on. Oh, there we go. Okay, here's the deal. Here's what I know. There's not a four-hour wait to get to In-N-Out because none of us are going, right? Um, I saw someone post last night that they went to In-N-Out. If you don't know, In-N-Out closed at 1.30 in the morning. And uh, they went there last night. And uh, because the lines are so long and all this kind of stuff, they're shutting off the lines at certain times before 1.30. They got there and they'd shut off the line like four minutes before they got there. Uh, and I said, you know, well, that's what you get for being out late the night before church because, you know, they're not at church this morning. So anyways, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you guys are here. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at Monmouth Christian, and we are working through a short series on the story of the prodigal. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 15. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It's a story, so it, a lot of it will make sense as we read through it. Um, there's Bibles in the pew back if you want to follow along. Luke 15. So last week, we started this talk about the prodigal, and uh, one of the things we started the conversation about was that, that we probably even mistitled the story. Because if you, if you look at a text, if you look at a, a Bible, probably right above verse 11, it probably has this title. It probably says, The Prodigal Son. And there's a lot of reasons, a lot of traditions behind why it's written there, because just so you know, Luke didn't write that in there. Editors added that later. They wrote The Prodigal Son. But here's the deal. Because of that title and our misunderstanding of the story, we've actually functioned, we have redefined an English word. We as the church have contributed to redefining a word in English because the actual, um, mo what most of us think prodigal means, which is why we think it's appropriate to be titled the prodigal son, is most of us think that prodigal means lost or wayward. And it's the way we, we use it if we're talking about, like if you've raised children and, and, and maybe you have a child who has um, wandered away from the family, wandered away from the faith, distanced themselves for whatever reason, you might refer to them, or if you have a friend or a coworker, might refer to them as a prodigal, right? Because we're saying they're lost or they're wayward or they've wandered away. And so that fits when we're talking about the prodigal son who wandered away from his family. The problem is, is that that's not actually what the word means. Prodigal actually means reckless and extravagant, which is why Timothy Keller, who's a pastor and a theologian, really smart guy, he says that we should actually probably call this story the prodigal God, the prodigal God. Because you see, even in this title, right, The Prodigal Son, if you know the story, we're going to talk about it in a minute if you don't know the story, but to, to, for those of you who do know the story, um, in titling that story, we miss who the story's even about. Because you see, when we title the story The Prodigal Son, we think that the story's about the younger son. The problem is, which is a weird part of the story, the younger son's only in half of the story. He, he disappears in verse 24, and the story continues on to verse 32 because, you see, the story isn't about the younger son or the older son. It's actually about the father. It's about the father. Last week, that's what we talked about. We talked about the prodigal God. We talked about the prodigal father and his grace and mercy and compassion and reckless generosity to both the younger son and the older son. Today, we're going to talk specifically about the older son, and, and it's kind of a call on us. 
Um, but, but if you've been around for a while, one of the things you'll hear me talk about often is context. Context, 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 context. There have been many occults throughout Christian history that have been raised out of people reading the Bible out of context. Reading a verse or two and pulling out and creating this whole crazy theology and people follow them about these ridiculous things, but we have to read the stories of the Bible in the context of what was going on. Now, if you, if you look, the verse, the story begins in, in Luke 15, verse 11. But right before that, if you look, Jesus actually tells another story. So that doesn't help us in context. It's called the story of the lost coin. And if you look before that, Jesus tells another story, which doesn't give us context. But if you look before that, if you look all the way at the beginning of Luke 15, okay, Luke 15, verse 1, it says this. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners, isn't that chipper? Aren't you glad you came to church today? All you wicked sinners. Anyways, there's these YouTube videos that are pretty funny where they dub over Jesus, the Jesus videos. Have you seen those? If you haven't, you should Google them. They're hilarious. Some church did them, and they Google over them. Anyways, uh, voice over them. So uh, sinners, just for clarification, isn't like to say like, just people who sinned and there were other people who hadn't sinned. It's in Jewish culture in Jesus' day, it was a, it was a class of people. It was unwanted. It was the rejected. It was, it was those who, um, it, it was people who made uh, leather because they handled dead things and they handled um, pigs and all those types of things. It was a class of people. So now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him being Jesus both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What a horrible accusation. You see, um, the context of the story is that Jesus is telling a story about the character of God to a different audience than we might imagine. Because, see, a lot of times when we read this story, we love to settle in on the younger son. We love to settle in on our own rebellion in our life and talk about how we wandered from God or, or we've been disobedient to God or God calls us to do things and we haven't done it, we haven't been faithful. And yet when we come returning to God, that he runs to us. And we talked about that last week, that God runs to him, that the father runs to him and he grabs him and he embraces him. We love to talk about that part of the story. But the audience that Jesus is talking about is not those people. The audience that Jesus is telling this parable to isn't to the sinners, isn't to the tax collectors, isn't to the younger brother. It's the older brother. And here, here's one of the reasons that I know that. The younger brothers are already running to Jesus. The younger brothers and sisters in the parable, the ones who've wandered away, the ones who, who, who've rejected God, the ones who have been disobedient in their life, the ones who've been reckless and extravagant and wandered away from the family of God, they're already running to him. Isn't that what it just says in this verse? Like, they're already coming to him. It's the accusation the Pharisees make to Jesus. You welcome in all these dirty people because they're running to him. In fact, it's like the thrust of Jesus' ministry over and over again. How often, when you read through the Gospels, do you see this thing about crowds? Crowds of people come to him. The feeding of 5,000 is crowds of people coming to him. There's a story um, that just really kind of paints the picture of Jesus' daily life once his ministry starts rolling. And um, 
It's the story, it talks about this woman who, uh, um, to, to use the way the Bible actually phrases it, that has the issue of bleeding, okay? And we could talk medically about what that is later, but it's not important in the story. So she's got this issue that sets her apart, that makes her a sinner, that makes her separated, makes her unwanted, makes her rejected in Jewish culture. And she believes that if she could just get close enough to Jesus, just to touch the hem of his garment, that he would heal her. And so she does. She fights in, the story tells us, that she fights in amongst the crowd to get close enough to Jesus, and she touches him, and she just touches his garment, and she's healed. And then it says, Jesus says, who touched me? And you remember the absurdity of the story? Because the disciples are like, Jesus, everyone, like everyone touched you. We're packed into this little alley with all these people jammed. What are you talking about? Everybody's touched you. Because Jesus' ministry was symbolized by daily seeing younger brothers and sisters run to him. About daily seeing those who'd wandered away, who'd been rejected, who were unwanted, running to him. So I don't think Jesus sat down to tell his parable to say, oh, hey, all you younger brothers, all you rebellious, all you who've wandered away, all you who are unwanted and overlooked, let me tell you about how generous God is to the younger brother. I think that when you look in the context of the story, Jesus is actually talking to a different audience. He's talking... He's telling the story for the purpose of the understanding of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, if you don't know a lot about Jewish culture, the Pharisees were a religious ruling class, right? So you mix in authority, like governmental authority and religious leadership, and you have the Pharisees. And the scribes were like scholars and theologians and think of like college professors, right? The, the, so you have the scribes and the Pharisees, and all these people are coming, and they begin to grumble and complain that Jesus would welcome them to the table, and he tells them a story that we see in the prodigal. So if you don't know the story, the one runs away, right? The younger one, well, he doesn't run away. He comes to his dad, he says, I want my inheritance, right? And we talked about this last week. So um, when they do inheritance, this is an important part of the story. It's going to come back around in the end. It's going to be really important that you understand, and it's very complicated math, okay? You ready for this? They brace. You guys thought you were coming to church. You didn't know you had to do math. In fact, the first college I went to, first Bible college, um, their kind of like unofficial motto was no math, no Mondays because it's ministry, right? And so, um, so I, I don't know if this math is right, but I'm going to do my best, okay? So he, he, there's two sons, and in Jewish culture, the oldest son gets two shares and everybody else gets one. I mentioned this last week. My parents were in church. I expect them to remember this when they're writing their wills, okay? The oldest son gets two shares, and the younger sons, each of them get one. So there's two sons, so it gets divided into three shares, okay? You with me now? Complicated math here, okay? Now, the younger son comes to his dad. He says, I want my portion of the inheritance. Well, the older son gets two shares, so the younger son gets one, okay? This is the most inefficient way of doing this story, okay? The younger son gets one share, so he gets a third. So then think about this process. If this story actually lived out, the, the younger son is sitting in the living room of his dad, watching his dad have a yard sale to sell off all of his stuff over weeks, probably months, getting rid of a third of everything that he owns. And the story seems to imply that this father is extremely wealthy. So he sits there and waits weeks and months for the father to clear out a third of his estate so he can give him all the money and he can send him away. And so he goes away and he takes the third of the money and he blows all the third of the money. And then we know the story. He comes back and he says, oh, you know, if, uh, if I was just a day laborer for my dad, 
If I was a hired hand, I'd, I'd be in better shape than, than what I'm doing right now. And so he runs back, and the father grabs him, and he embraces him. And then he, he, he puts a robe on him, he puts a, a ring on him, and, and he kills the fattened calf, and they throw a party. Right? And that's where we pick up the story. It says this in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. Let's pause. Here's my first response when I read this story. He was so close. Do you see that? He's like, he's right there. I mean, a lot of times, and well, a lot of times we envision a story like he's like miles away out in the field. And he turns and all of a sudden he hears a noise. Okay, it says that he hears singing and dancing. Okay. Dancing is not a very ruckus, loud thing, right? Okay, uh, you know, I mean, like, you're welcome. I'm 76% Irish, so I feel like, like it's in my blood to do this, like, thing. I'm going to pull a hammy doing that, right? He hears dancing. He can't be that far away from the house. He's so close to the party. And what's he do? He sits in the field. Man. I'm afraid that so many of us are so close to the party and yet we just sit in the field. God wants us as the church to be a part of this, this, this eternal celebration and rejoicing of sons and daughters returning to him. And yet some of us would rather just listen to the music and sit in the field. You see, what's incongruent in the older son's life is his position and his posture. You see, his posture, he finds himself just sitting out in the field sulking. But look at, look at how the father, so it says the father comes out to him. And, and the, the, the older son speaks right away. Which says something about the character of God, that he just allows us to kind of throw a hissy fit. But he answered and said to his father, um, Look! For so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, son, position, son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours, son. You see, this morning, I would make no argument to question your position. If, Scripture tells us, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord, you are a son or a daughter of the King. That, that if you've confessed with your mouth and that, that Jesus is Lord, that you are a son or a daughter of king, that your position as a son or a daughter is firm. But some of us need to have an honest heart check about our posture. 
father comes out to him, son, son, you're so close to the party. It's right there. And it's easy. Here's the thing. It's easy for us to fault the older son. Isn't it? Like, isn't it easy? Isn't it easy if you, if you, if you are a dad or a, or a mom to, to, to get defensive and angry for the father? To, to get angry and defensive for the younger son? If you've been a younger son and you've wandered away, maybe you're the black sheep of your family, and, and, and to find grace and mercy in Jesus, isn't it easy to get angry at the older son and be like, come on! Don't you get it? What are you doing in the field? He was dead, but he's alive. Don't you get it? And it's easy. It's easy to throw the older son under the bus. But here's the deal. This whole thing cost the older son significantly. Let's, let's go back to our math. Do you remember our math? Here's the deal. Okay, so younger son gets how much? A third. He gets a third. Older son gets two-thirds. Okay? So now the younger son goes out and he burns the third of the estate. So how much of the third is left? Zero. Good. You're good at math here. Better than me. Okay? Zero. So now all that's left is the two-thirds, Right? So when the father kills the fattened calf, how did he pay for that calf? Out of two-thirds. When he hires musicians and dancers to come throw a party, where did that money come from? It came from the two-thirds. When he hires a party person to come and to orchestrate all this party and celebration, and they go to the store, and they go to, like, party lot of Jerusalem or something, and buy all this stuff to decorate, and they put streamers all over, and they blow up balloons, and they shoot confetti, and, and they have music and DJs. Where's all that come from? It all comes from the two-thirds. You see, the celebration doesn't cost the younger son anything but it sure cost the older son. Because every dollar that the, older, that the father spends on reintroducing his younger son comes at the expense of the older son. If you're rebellious jerk of a younger brother, and here, let's be honest, we all know this, right? Younger brothers always get away with more, right? Can we all agree, all firstborns, can we all agree? All you younger kids are like, well, life's hard for me too, right? Whatever, okay? <laughs> Suck it up and deal with it, okay? So, um, the cost for the younger son to come back and to party is at the expense of the inheritance of the older son. And if his dad was blowing Tens of thousands of dollars. To Wouldn't you sulk? Wouldn't you sit there and get indignant and angry and think, my brother is taking advantage of my aging father. He thinks that he can just show up and dad will burn through all of his money just for this one kid. I mean, he's not going to have any money to care for himself when he's getting older. He's not going to have any money to pass on. He's not going to have any inheritance for me because this younger brother over here is going to burn through all of it just like he burned through the other third. 
and he's talking to an audience that knows this. He's talking to Pharisees and scribes. And here's the deal. Jesus' willingness to reintroduce the younger son into the family comes at a cost for the scribes and the Pharisees. They devoted their life to propping up a system that elevated them and suppressed others. They had spent money and time and vacation and, and, and relationships. They had sacrificed greatly that they might be elevated this posture and position that people would see them when they would come walking in with their religious garb and they go, oh, oh, there's a Pharisee. Oh, there's a Pharisee. Hey, quit cussing. There's Pharisees here, right? So people do when pastors walk in the room. Quit cussing. They've never heard those words before, Right? Hey, tell them about how you really want to go to church this Sunday, right? Those Pharisees come in and they all kind of, it would come at great cost to the Pharisees for the younger son to be welcomed back in. Here's my question. It's real simple. And this end's going to seem a little abrupt because I'm not going to try and berate you with it. I just want to be honest with you and ask you. Most of us sitting in this room are not the younger son at this moment in our life. Maybe we were one point. But most of us sitting in this room are the older son. And the question that Jesus is posing to the Pharisees, the question that Jesus would challenge us with today, is what are you willing to sacrifice that the younger son might come back? What are you willing to sacrifice? The cost of the party comes at the cost of the inheritance of the, second, of the older son. Maybe it's time. Maybe it is money. Maybe it's, maybe it's talent. Maybe it's energy. Maybe it's, maybe it's focus. Maybe it's, 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 it's business things. Maybe it's, maybe it's grace. But Jesus is looking at a crowd of Pharisees, and he's asking them, to be the kind of older son who would be willing to watch his inheritance dwindle away that another son might be welcomed in. And my question for you is, what would you give up? What have you given up? What will you give up? Let me pose it to you a little bit differently. Imagine the person that you love most that doesn't know Jesus. Your heart breaks for the crushing destruction in their life and the darkness and the brokenness that you see, and yet their eyes seem so close to it, and you just don't know why they don't see the way out and the path and the freedom and grace and mercy, what would you be willing to sacrifice if you knew that it meant they would come walking through one of those doors? This is the call Jesus is making to every single one of us, older sons and daughters, it is what it is to be a follower of Christ, to be one who is willing to sacrifice and to lay down for one another, to be generous with all that we have. I heard a pastor say that one time, he said, um, and it just like, it hit me just like, right, just like, because oh! he said, he goes, uh, he goes, a lot of you sit in this room and you have dreams of like wanting to change the world. And, and like, this is your prayer, like, like, you're like God, use me to, to change the world, to change the country, to change your church or your family or your marriage or whatever. And he says, uh, he says, the problem is, 
is that why would God use you to change the world? He can't trust you with $100 or 10 minutes. My question for you today is can God trust you to be the kind of people who live generously and open-handed that others might celebrate and return home?